They are considered among the most sublime words in all of sacred literature. The prologue to the fourth gospel. Just 18 verses in length. And yet in this majestic introduction, we read the story of you and me and God and this universe. Seems right on this day of new beginnings that we read the prologue together. Put your Bible out. Didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. Eighteen short verses. But let's read them together. Any translation you brought, it's fine with me. I'll be in the Andrew Study Bible. New King James. I'll read out loud, you read in your heart. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. For He was before me. And of His fullness we have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Let's pray. O oh God. Show us the Word, and do not let us remain the same. We pray in His name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Just kind of think through this with me. Can you imagine a world without any words at all? Hmm? A world without words. Let's, let, let, let's just discover that world together right now. 
I'm going to give the command and all the words will, dis- all the words will disappear. Let all the words now be gone. think about it. This hypothetical world without words. What changed? If you, had, if, if you lived in a world without words, what just changed? The sound of words, gone. All conversation, all language, all singing with words. You could hum, but that would be it. The writing, the printing, The preservation and display of words, gone. No more computer screens. No more books. No more hymnals. The archiving of words, gone. No history. No science. No literature. You can't imagine. The point is, we cannot imagine a world without words. Although there are some people, listen to this, there are some people alive today who suffer from what is called aphasia. There's developmental aphasia. That means you're born with it. There's after you got your head hit aphasia as an adult. Aphasia is the inability to speak, read, or write words. Can you imagine a world with no words at all? So here's a thought question for you. Could you be a sentient being? Could you be a feeling? Could you be a thinking being if words did not exist? Could you? Back at the turn of the 19th century, from the 18th to the 19th century, a German philosopher and linguist and educator, his name Wilhelm Humboldt, was grappling with the interrelationship between words and thoughts. This is, this is pretty heavy, but I thought it significant. Let me put it on the screen for you. These are the words of the German philosopher Wilhelm von Humboldt. Language, he wrote, is the formative organ of thought. Isn't that something? Not the brain. Language is the formative organ of thought. Intellectual activity, entirely mental entirely internal and to some extent passing without trace. Look, so I'm looking into your face right now and you're looking into mine. Can you tell what I'm thinking? Without trace, I'm doing it. You have no concept of what I'm thinking. Isn't that right? Intellectual activity, entirely entirely internal and to some extent passing without trace, becomes through sound externalized in speech and perceptible to the senses. Last line. Thought and language are therefore one and inseparable from each other. You can't have thought without words. You agree with that? 
I mean, that's what's happening right now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to communicate something to you. So I have this little, this frenetic uh, internal intellectual activity going on. And I'm, I'm grabbing as fast as I can audio, audio symbols so that the words would describe to you what I'm trying to say. I'm externalizing my thoughts. And by the way, you think about this. My thoughts are my very identity. Isn't that true? I am who I think. Right? If you can't hear how I think, you'll never know me. That's how powerful the Word is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In that single sublime pronouncement, philosophy, linguistics, and theology all collide. For as Humboldt noted, what do words do but externalize our inner thoughts? then what would God's capital W word do but reveal His inner thoughts? If we cannot know His inner thoughts, we will never know Him. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So who is this Word? And what difference does it make to you and me in the third millennium? Well, let's see how well I'm able to externalize my internal thought processes to give you, give you some instructions. Can you do two things at once? Can you? All right. Two things. Please do them simultaneously. Number one, find, first, find the first chapter of John in your Bible. Grab your Bible. You, did, you don't have a Bible. Pull the pew Bible out. You'll want to track this. Number one, find first John, uh, John chapter one. One. And number two, look in that New Year bulletin and pull out your study guide. Let's see if we can do the... Do, do both together. Open your Bible to John 1.1. 1, 1. Pull out your study guide. You didn't get a study guide. We've got some uh, friendly ushers who will make sure that you have your study guide uh, as we go on for these next few moments. Take out that brand new study guide for a brand new season as we begin a new journey here in the Pioneer Memorial Church on the campus of Andrews University. Brand new journey. By the way, I need to say this for those of you who don't know. And there could be some of you, some of you watching right now. This school year, in this school year, every public venue for worship, dorm worships, co-ed worships, co-curricular worships, chapel, house of prayer on Wednesday nights, Sabbath mornings, every venue for public worship this school year at Andrews University is going to take one of the, one of the four Gospels or the book of Acts. This university will spend the entire year tracking Jesus. I'll bet you you could trace all the way back to Battle Creek College and you would never find a school year where the entire institution said we will devote our spiritual journey to the life of Christ. And can you believe it? Sabbath mornings, we get the most sublime gospel of the four. By the way, not just Sabbath mornings. This is the third uh, bit of instruction. You already have your Bible open to John 1. You already have your study guide, but I need to quickly point this out to you. This is the uh, New Year bulletin for today. 
on the back cover every Sabbath, you will find a list of, of reflecting, brooding questions over the next assignment. Now, today we have to do what's happening today. And so you, you go to page 10 for our next week's assignment. You know what that means? That means you can collaborate with a small group and say, hey, listen, let's, let's just journey through John together. Small group questions are here, by the way. Uh, our small group pastor, you just saw her on the screen a moment ago, Esther Knott. She is coming up with in, little uh, get acquainted activities at the beginning of those small groups. You'll have that here. But reflective questions so that we can journey through the Gospels together. And in this case, we're going to journey through the Gospel, the fourth Gospel. And by the way, you can get it on the web as well. These questions will be posted on the web. And before I forget this, next Sabbath, starting next Sabbath, because I didn't have a chance to announce this to you, you weren't here last week, but starting next Sabbath, bring your smartphone to church. Only second service. Bring your smartphone next Sabbath, because next Sabbath I'm going to hear from you through this, through this smartphone, and I will know exactly how you're responding by putting the responses right on that screen. So it's going to be interactive, this journey through the fourth gospel. Next Sabbath. Put it on vibrate when you come. But bring your smartphone next Sabbath. All right? Oh, boy, and I forgot about our viewers. We're so glad to have you joining us for this brand new series. Look at the title of the series. Let me put it on the screen for you so you can get our our website. You can get the study guide. Title of this new series, The Last Word, The Fourth Gospel for a Final Generation. And there's the website. Because the study guide that we're just... uh, Getting ready to plunge into it's sitting for you there in the at the website www.pmchurch pioneer memorial pmchurch.tv go to the website you're looking for part one of the series it says study guide click on you'll have it and by the way all of you who are watching live streaming across the nation or wherever you are on this planet right now we're delighted to have you the same computer you're using can access the study guide for you and you can share this journey with us so we've done that bit of housekeeping let's go put it down please in the beginning was the word. Fill in your study guide. In the beginning was the Word. Say, oh, wait, oh, 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 time, time, time out. Pastor, time out. Wait. I thought you were going to say something about who wrote the book. How can we plunge into a book if you don't say something about the author of the book? Well, actually, there's no point in saying anything about the author of the book. Because if you have the Andrew Study Bible, you already have the answer right there. If you don't have the Andrew Study Bible, you know what to do about it. But the other point is, and I'm serious now with this one, the other point is the author purposely does not identify himself in his gospel. Not a, not a word about, hi, this is me. So obviously he believes his identity is not crucial to our understanding of the fourth gospel. Now, he does include five, five times he includes this code phrase. And we try to extrapolate from this code phrase. When you hear the code phrase for the first time, it may come across as a bit, with a bit of hubris. But I'm telling you what, it is a self-effacing code phrase. And let me show you the last time this code phrase appears. Hint about who this uh, author might be. Go to the last page of the Gospel of John. John chapter 21. So you're already in John 1. I'm sorry. I'll make you go to the end of the Gospel now. Last page, John 21. This is the fifth occurrence of this code phrase. Oh, the, whole, the, the phrase itself is a sermon which we will resist. John chapter 21, verse 20. Then Peter, the last story has just taken place. Oh, it is a powerful story. And we'll get to it by the end of the school year. So don't read ahead. Verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw, here comes the code phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Following who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, 
Who is it that betrays you? The disciple whom Jesus loved. You say, well, man, that is a bit of a kind of an egocentric way. Hey, look, I'm the one that Jesus loved. No, not in the Greek. Here's how the Greek literally reads. The disciple that Jesus kept on loving. In spite of my mess-ups and my failures, he kept loving me anyway. I told you there's a sermon in that line. The disciple Jesus kept on loving. Isn't that just like Jesus, by the way? Isn't that like Him? I fail again and again and again. And He keeps coming back to me and He says, I'm giving you another opportunity. I'm giving you another chance. I'm still loving you. I haven't quit loving you. The disciple whom, the disciples whom Jesus kept on loving. Wow. Five times He says it. He says it in the upper room. He's the one leaning against the, the uh, chest of Jesus. He says it at the cross. Jesus looks down from the cross and He says, Boy, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. That's the second time. Third time in the resurrection morning, this disciple, whoever he is, has a foot race with Peter to the tomb. He outruns Peter, obviously younger. Fourth time, this is the the one. Sharp eyes, eagle eyes in the pre-dawn light recognizes that that stranger in the mist on the shore is the Lord. And he turns to Peter and he says, Yo, it's the Lord. Fifth time, we just read it. He's following right behind Peter. And Jesus. He loves staying near Jesus. That's why. So who is, who is Church tradition says, oh, we know who that is. That's the youngest son of Zebedee. That's the kid brother of James. That's John boy. That's who that is. He was one of the inner circle. Remember the inner circle? Peter, James, and John. They go on the Mount of Transfiguration. Everybody stays behind. They go into Jairus' daughter for the resurrection. Everybody stays behind. They go into the inner recesses of Gethsemane. Everybody stays behind. What is this? Jesus playing favorites? Kind of elevating the three above the others? No, 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 no. Jesus is always hungry for those who are hungry for Him. That's how it works. He's not playing favorites with John. John was pushing, pushing to get closer and closer to Jesus. I hope that's the kind of pushing you do in this fourth gospel journey that you and I have embarked on together. Push, push, just like John Boy. Push. Jesus is big on the young. Push. Brings them in. By the way, this John Boy outlived all the other disciples. The other 11, you know why? They all died violently. All 11 died violently. John will die of old age. He's the last survivor. And scholars believe, listen to this, scholars believe that the now elderly John sat down after he wrote the book of Revelation. He sat down. And for his final work, he tells his story of Jesus. Which makes, chronologically speaking, the fourth gospel, the last word of the New Testament. It's the book written closest to us in time. And so you and I will return to this fourth gospel again and again and again. And we will keep running into that last word again and again and again. It will be the last word about death. It will be the last word about the Sabbath. It will be the last word about the divinity of Christ. It will be the last word about His humanity. It will be the last word about eternal life. It will be the last word about communal forgiveness. It will be the last word about the great I Am. It will be the last word about the Lamb of God. It will be the last word about knowing God. It will be the last word about the judgment of God. It will be the last word about salvation and the Savior. It will be the last word about the Holy Spirit. You'll find there the last word about transformation. 
Because look, if, if Jesus can look at John Boy, remember he gave him a nickname. If Jesus can look at John Boy and say, you know what, I'm going to name you brothers the Hothead Brothers. You are so angry. If Jesus can look at John Boy and keep on loving him and change him into his own image, then there's hope for the likes of you and me as well. Isn't there? Hope for us. He can change us into his image as well. All right. John 1.1. In the beginning. Got your Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, you already knew this, but I'm going to remind you that the Greek word for word is logos. From whence comes our word logo or logic or all the ologies. You know all the ologies? What's biology? Greek word bios. Logos. Biology is a word about life. Bios means life. What's zoology? Zoe, life. Logos, word about life. Life, zoology. What's anthropology? Anthropology, anthropos, man, word about man. What's theology? Theos, God, word about God. We all know the word, logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Hey, guess what? John didn't didn't coin this personification of logos. Greek philosophers had already done it. But here's what's amazing. Craig Keener, in his illuminating two-volume commentary on John, which I'm going to be reading through throughout this series, carefully unfolds how John masterfully has combined two ancient personifications. You know what personification means, don't you? It means giving human attributes to a non-human reality. The Hebrews came along and they, they, they turned them into people. Wisdom and Torah. The two were turned into people. John combines those two Hebrew personifications into his brand new moniker for Christ, the Word. John is the only Bible writer, by the way, that names God the Word. He does it in all three of his books. I say all three of us. In three of his five books. We've already seen it in John. Look at, look at 1 John 1, 1, the opening line. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the Word of life. He loves the Logos, that picture of the second person of the Godhead. Now watch this. This is the most spectacular picture in all of Scripture. The majest, the, the, the explosive return of Christ to this planet. You, you will not read a more dramatic portrayal of the second coming. This is, this is Revelation chapter 19. Notice how he weaves it in here. 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. I love to picture that pawing, champing at the bits, white stallion. He's riding that white stallion. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now watch this. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Keep reading. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on their white horses. You have the heavens filled with white horses. Final line, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that amazing? The returning Christ with a blood-dipped robe is called the Logos, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word of God shall return one day to this planet in a robe dipped in blood. Wow! 
No wonder the fourth gospel is for the final generation because it's the gospel closest to those who live at the end. How close are we to this return of the Logos of God? How close? President of this university, Niels Eric Andreessen, this week, addressing the entire campus in our opening convocation, reminded us that it is no longer the evangelists who are calling our attention to the signs anymore. Journalists of every stripe and persuasion are raising their voices with alarm. Warnings about the fragility of our national and global economies are mounting. Scientists fearful of human destruction of our ecosystems are raising their voices as well in alarm. Rampant starvation, political collapse in the Middle East, the pent-up anger of the downtrodden masses darkly foreshadowed in London's burning rage a few weeks ago. Mother Nature turning on us with a vengeance as we speak. You'd have to be asleep to miss the ominous similarity between the alarm of the news media today and the ancient prophetic writings long ago. The last word for a final generation. For if ever there were a generation needing to be gripped in mind and heart by the gospel of Jesus, it would have to be this one, sent out, compelled into a rapidly disintegrating civilization. We made the right choice. We are journeying with the right gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Fill it in, please. And the Word was God. The reader of the fourth gospel quickly discovers that one of the primary missions for the elderly John's composing of his story with Jesus is to assert in unequivocal terms that Christ is divine. And here in the prologue, he moves instantly to his point. And the Word was God. Period. Is that some new idea being slipped into the New Testament just before the canon doors are slammed shut? Hardly. The New Testament abounds with evidences. I wish you'd jot them down. Evidences for the divinity of Christ. Many of them irrefutable for the deity of Christ. Here we go. Jot them down. There is the evidence of the life Jesus lived. Which of you convicts me of sin? Show me one. Nobody, nobody stepped forward and said, ah, it's defective goods. Evidence number one, the life Jesus lived. Ev- evidence number two, The words Jesus spoke. No man spake like this man. Nobody spoke with such authority. It's as as if he wrote the book himself. Evidence number three. The miracles he performed. Don't need to linger long there. Evidence number four. The prophecies he fulfilled. Please note in that little list, every one of these is corroborated by Scripture. But notice, I slipped in something from Daniel. Daniel 9. Isaac Newton, the brilliant English mathematician, described Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, as the crown jewel of the Old Testament. It identifies the Messiah and the specific time, the date of His arrival. It's the great messianic jewel. And then finally, the eternity 
he previously inhabited. Unabashed declaration in John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, that Jesus predated his existence on this planet into, the, into eternity past as the eternal one. Yes, Al, come on, Dwight. Please. These verses don't prove the divinity of Christ. They simply prove the Bible's teaching of the divinity of Christ. Yes, but the bright mind, much brighter than mine, C.S. Lewis, himself an agnostic in the 20th century, became the greatest, arguably, apologist for Christianity in the previous century, 20th. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, Mere Christianity, he says, I'm going to give you a series of propositions that I believe prove the divinity of Jesus. And I'm going to run them by you right now. I have my little mere Christianity right here. I have to keep a rubber band around it so that the pages don't fall out. And I want to read from one of those pages in just a moment, so I won't take the little rubber band off yet. So here, here, come, the, here come the propositions. Jot these down, please. This is from C.S. Lewis. Brilliant mind. Became a believer. Number one, God gave us something called the conscience. Well, that's true. What does he call the conscience? A sense of right and wrong. There are people all over this planet, he points out, who spend their lives trying to be true to their consciences. That is absolutely true. You're one of them. The people who have absolutely no, no religious connection like you do still try to obey this voice. Number two, God shall put a particular people, and then, Lewis writes, spent several centuries hammer, hammering into their heads the sort of God he was. The children of Israel. Come on, you've got to tell the world who I am. So yeah, that's why I picked them. Um, now, keep going. Among these Jews, a man, capital M, a man shows up who, Lewis writes, goes about talking as if he was God. He just shows up and says, I'm God. Whoa. And keep writing, Proposition 4. He says he has always existed and claims to forgive sins. Huh, what are you going to do with that? Let me take the rubber band off here. And uh, I want to read... I want to read this line. The nice thing about a book that's falling apart is you can take the pages out and just read them without having to keep them in the book. By the way, somebody after first service says, I used to be a book binder. Thank you, Lars. He said, I'll take this and I'll bind that back for you. Hallelujah. All right, so this is, uh, this is page 55, Mere Christianity. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often that we no longer see it for what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins. Now, think, think, think. The, Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe, and I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet, this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven, and he never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended all offenses. And now the words are in your study. I've got to put them on the screen. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken, and whose love is wounded in every sin. Isn't that amazing? Brilliant mind. What's Lewis's point? You have them in your study guide. I'll put them on the screen for you. 
Lewis, wrapping it up here, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Oh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis responds, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Lewis plumbed the depths of the Gospel and Holy Scripture and then came to the conclusion he was who he said he was. And Lewis fell at the feet of Christ. My Lord and my God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's point is inescapable. The Christ we have come to love is as divine and eternal as the Father we must come to know. Christ is God even as the Father and the Spirit are God. A century ago, Desire of Ages put it this way. Put it on the screen for you. From the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. He was the image of God, the image of His greatness and majesty, the outshining of His glory. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. Now, here comes the, here comes the, the pinnacle. He was the Word of God God's thought made audible. The italics are mine. God's thought made audible. Which takes us full circle, doesn't it? Back to the German philosopher Wilhelm von Humboldt. And how did von Humboldt put it? Put the words on the screen again. Thought and language are therefore one and inseparable from each other. John's portrayal. In chapter 1, is of the eternal Word who stood beside the eternal Father and who reveals to us the thought and heart of the eternal God. But so what? Hmm? So what? Great teaching. So what? What difference does the divinity of Christ make for my living in the third millennium? I'll tell you so what. I want you to jot these down, please. We'll close with this. If Christ is divine, there are seven implications. Seven implications for you and me. Let's go. If Christ is divine, it means that, number one, I must seek Him. Jot that down, please. And why not? Just like the Greeks on that Tuesday before Jesus' crucifixion in John 12, they come and they say, we want to see Jesus. We would see Jesus. Wise men from the east came at His birth. 
Wise men from the West came at his death. And like that old quip goes, it's always a wise man and a wise woman who seeks Jesus. We're beginning a journey here together. I'm inviting you to plunge into that journey. Seek Jesus as you never have before. You say, Dwight, I've already believed about Jesus. But, what does the divinity of Christ do to your life today? What difference does it make in the way you're living? When was the last time you meditated on the divinity of the Word? Go back to the Gospel of John all through the week. Come back on Sabbath. We'll, just, we'll, we'll let the Word rise to the front. And then we'll return to the week and study again. Brood through the Gospel with me. Think. That's why you're in this university. You've learned to think. What is the picture of the divine Christ mean? Number one, it means I must seek Him. Number two, it means I must believe in Him. It's not enough to seek Him. I must make a decision about Him. In fact, John is very unambiguous about this being his primary purpose for writing the book. This is near the end, chapter 20, verse 31. Why would you write this, disciple, that Jesus kept on loving? But these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. It's about believing. It's not just any old belief. That's why there's number three, I must trust Him. Because the devils believe and they tremble. Is there a demon that has been changed by believing? No. It's not enough just to believe. You must trust. I must trust Him. Just like the disciples on that pitch black, stormy midnight lake and this apparition is, is walking through the mist toward them. And in panic they cry out. And the voice comes. It is I. Be not afraid. I don't know what kind of storms we're going to run into this year. I have no clue for the planet. I have no clue for my own life, let alone yours. But I must trust Him. He's the Divine One. Whatever happens to me goes through Him. And He says, boy, girl, I know this has happened to you, but I determined that if you go through this with me, this becomes a win for you one day. Hold my hand on the water. Hold my hand. We can pass through this storm together. Seven implications. If Christ is divine, it means I must seek Him. It means I must believe in Him. It means I must trust Him. And it means I must worship Him. And why not? The patron saint for the third millennials, by the way, is the doubting Thomas. Show me. Prove it. And when Jesus appeared before Thomas... Thomas fell to the ground and he worshipped Him. And what did he cry out? My Lord and my God. By the way, John wrote his Gospel for un-un-eyewitnesses. He wrote his Gospel for the second generation, not the first. That's why Jesus' miracles in this Gospel don't need Him up close. He can just speak the Word. That's why Jesus' teachings are couched the way they are, so that from a distance you can know it's still true. You don't have to touch His wounds. Blessed are they who never see but believe. That's to us second generationers. We never saw Him. Blessed are you who believe anyway. That's us. It's our Gospel. Number five, I must love Him. And why not? I must love Him extravagantly, just like Mary, who in sobbing tears breaks open her alabaster box and the perfume 
fills the room. When's the last time you loved Jesus extravagantly to where your friends and family said, did you have to go that far? That's what they said of Mary. I must love Him, and why not? Number six, I must obey Him. It's not enough to love Him. If you love me, you'll obey me. I must obey Him. Just like the blind man who hears Jesus clear his throat and feels this warm spit on his eyes. And Jesus smears the dirt with the spit all over the man's eyes in John 9. And he says, all right, now go wash it off at the pool of Siloam. Now the blind man could have said, this is so crazy, I will not do it. And he would have been blind till his death. You must obey him. When he gives you a command, you must obey him. It's not up for negotiation. You want a miracle in your life? You want the supernatural in your life? Obey me. I must obey Him. And finally, I must follow Him. I must follow Him. Peter, heartbroken, thrice, curses the name of Jesus. Curses Him. And Jesus, three times around that campfire, says, Peter, do you love me? I do, I do, I do. Peter, do you really love me? And then like music to his ears... Peter hears the words, all right, boy, you do love me. Come, follow me. John, Peter, failures, yes, but in Christ, the call, I call failures to follow me. You feel a failure at the beginning of this new year? It's okay. There are a whole bunch of us in that category. Don't worry about it. Jesus specializes in failures. I'm calling you. Come here. Follow me. I am the Word of God. And through my Word, you will know the mind of God one day. What a God. We have to follow Him. Come on. We have to follow Jesus. So here's the deal. I'm asking you. Would you be willing today at this, at this New Year moment to say, Dwight, I don't know where this Gospel's going, but I'll join you. We'll journey through the fourth gospel. And what I'd like to say before all of heaven today is, by the grace of the Word of God, by His grace, I will follow wherever He leads. Would you be willing to pray that prayer? It's a simple prayer. Would you stand to your feet? By standing to your feet, you say, Dear God, I will follow. Wherever the Word leads. You see, that's the truth. Come on, guys, that's the truth. Follow John as he follows Jesus. Because you know why? God's first Word is His last Word and His best Word. I say, let's follow Him. What do you say? It is our tradition here in this university congregation that at this moment in the new year beginning that we are standing in commitment and then we sing together the Lord's Prayer. The most powerful prayer you can pray in commitment to the Word of God. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.